Hello and welcome to another episode of Bear Books Podcast. I'm April Berry. And I'm Daisy Ray. And today we are interviewing the author of Control, Paul McMurrah. Control is the second book in the Powerless Earth series following Reliance. And it was fabulous. I agree with you, but I believe I was at a disadvantage here. I didn't read Reliance. That was a, a book that you solely chose and reviewed on your own a few seasons ago. But I felt that I would have benefited from a better experience if I actually had have read Reliance. Okay. Paul will be really chuffed to hear that. It just means that everybody that wants to read Control will buy Reliance as well. Of course, that is my recommendation. If you are going to read Control, you do need to read Reliance first. Paul has got a good way of writing. I loved his style of writing and the way he develops his characters. It made me feel I could I could actually get inside the head so that I was that character living that part of the book. Yeah. Let me give you a rundown of the synopsis just so that you have a little bit of a clue about what the book's about, just in case you haven't read it yet. But I know you're going to want to. So the blurb reads like this. With the world still crippled by an unprecedented power cut, Lisa, Simon and Derek find refuge at Lisa's family home in Donegal. With its own source of power, the self-sufficient farm seems the perfect place for them to ride out the chaos and heal from their recent traumas. Lisa's brother Ray has also made it safely home, but Derek's relief at reuniting with his colleague and closest friend soon turns to suspicion when a shocking discovery on the farm threatens to unearth family secrets and raise questions Ray would rather not answer. With the local authorities fearing no better than those in the cities, an ageing relic of Ireland's troubled past sees it as a patriotic duty to step in and take control by any means necessary. You see, I thought he was a good guy at first. Yeah. I mean, we don't want to give too much away about the characters in this book, but yes. It is quite a dark story, but it would be. There's no power on Earth. Everything's been knocked out by a storm. And the lack of electricity has such far-reaching effects. Yeah, I don't think people realise just exactly how much we rely on that one source of energy. No, I don't think they do. I mean, think about it for more than 30 seconds and it gets quite dark quite soon. I mean, you're thinking about... There's no cash anymore because you can't get your money out of the bank. You can't buy anything from the shops because you've got no cash and they can't take card because there's no electricity. All the food that's in the shops, in the freezers and the fridges, is all going to go off unless they give it away. It's just going to go to waste. And supplies can't be replenished. No, not at all. Anyway, on that sombre note, let's hear from Paul, shall we? <laughs> yes, let's. Good morning, Paul, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for agreeing to join us and talk about Control, which is the second in a series. The first one, Reliance, which I believe we reviewed a couple of seasons ago and was one of Daisy's favourite books. For sure. Hi, April. Hi, hi, Daisy. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Well, lovely to talk to you today. So we're going to launch into grilling you straight away, Paul, I think. So in terms of control, what inspired you to write that, the sequel to the dystopian thriller Reliance? And did you always 
think it was going to be a series? When I started Reliance, it was just going to be a standalone book. Um, but then I suppose once I get into the planning and started writing it, I think I realized then there was there was a lot more to the story that I wanted to tell. You know, so Alliance uh, spanned maybe just the first week or so of what was supposed to be a prolonged power cut. So I wanted then to just show, you know, what came next for the characters uh, and maybe to explore some other aspects of the consequences for society for a, a prolonged power cut. Yeah. I'm so pleased that you decided to write a sequel to it. So Reliance for me was a fascinating read. Absolutely loved it, mainly because it could happen and also human nature and the extreme behaviours. We have both good and bad and control hasn't got the shock value of Reliance, but it is much darker than Reliance. That's the thing that draws you into this one. What made you choose to go so dark? Well, I suppose you say it, you know, it could happen. And I think that that's probably one of the scary things about, you know, the fact that the coronal mass ejection, which causes the power cut, you know, that's not fiction. That's a real natural yeah. event. So and I think probably the last one that the last major one that hit Earth was back in 1859. So, but some scientists are, are now saying that it's only a matter of time before we're hit again. So I think that's, and, and a lot of readers have, have kind of fed that back saying that, you know, that's the scary thing that, you know, this, this could happen. Absolutely. Yeah. But like control is a lot darker with the things that happen and the characters you've woven into the second book. You have gone really dark. <laughs> I, I didn't see it myself as, as purposely going dark. I think it's just, it, it dives into more of a sort of the personal uh, relationships and that. And as the title sort of, you know, suggests it's about control, you know, what, what happens in a disaster with, if the, the authorities, you know, lose yeah. control, you know, there's a void there and, you know, someone needs to take charge, you know, someone needs to step up and, and lead. Yeah, not necessarily the best someone. Exactly. Maybe others will, will seek to take advantage of the situation. And, and maybe it's maybe, you know, it's a bit of a blurred line between the two, you know. So Yes. I think some of the some of the, the aspects of control are maybe unique to the setting and to the history of the, the country and that. But I think, you know, it's probably a, a scenario that or similar scenario could certainly play out regardless of the location, I think. Yeah, it is recognisable in ways, isn't it? Completely recognisable. It does give you a great insight into human behaviour and the evil side of humans comes out and the, mm. oh, what's the word I'm looking for? The self-preservation, I think. Yes. It's funny, actually, um, a friend of mine, an Australian author, um, contacted me a couple of years ago and, and asked if he could base a book on the, the Parlous Earth universe. So, so he did a book called Shelter, which was based in America. So it gave the, you know, the larger scale um, sort of consequences of the same par cut at the same time. And, and he, he cross references back to some of the characters in, in uh, Control. So it was, it was an interesting, really, really good book. Oh, nice. That's clever. Paul, can you tell us about your characters, Lisa, Simon, Derek, and, and how you sort of got their relationships to evolve in this story? Well, I don't think any of the main characters and Reliance could have really been described as, you know, the typical sort of hero type. Um, they were just normal people, normal lives, you know, normal jobs. And I think that was important because, you know, I wanted to show how a park cut could affect any one of us. You know, it's it's really only near the end of, of Reliance that those three characters then are, 
are kind of brought together, you know, as, in, in a series of extreme scenarios. They are very relatable from what you're saying there. They are just like typical human reactions to a out-of-control situation. So, yeah, I think that's what makes them relatable characters. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what, what it was going going for, you know. Um, so, the, you know, there was some relationship there. So Derek had known Lisa through working with her brother. And then Simon had only briefly been introduced to, to Lisa by his friend Martin, who was another character from book one. Um, but then by the end of the first book, as I say, you know, they were, they were bound together by sort of necessity. And then I suppose then in control, those relationships, you know, start to develop, particularly for Lisa and Simon. Yeah. Uh, albeit maybe on a foundation of sort of shared trauma. So, The Keenan farm in Donegal is self-sufficient and they're a good family. But even though it's a good family, there are still secrets buried there. I love that. It's a unique dimension to your story. So did you have to research and develop this to use it as the backdrop for your novel? I suppose the, the research for, for control and for alliance was was tricky. I had to I had to make sure I had cookies turned off and using a an incognito browser. <laughs> uh, especially on the for reliance. You know, it, it's you have to be very careful when you're researching the layout of a real prison and what weapons they keep there and things like that. So Similarly for, for control, you know, there were some topics there that I, I needed to research. and Don't get yourself arrested for your art. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I'd lived up in, in that area, you know, for, for a number of years. So, you know, some of the, the places and, and characters are, are based on, on my experience up there. It's nice when you can draw on actual life rather than having to just rely on Google or whatever mm. to look up what you need for your book and your story. If it's something that you've lived or an area that you've lived or there's something life experience in there, I think it makes it that bit more believable, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it gives it a realism that you can't draw from from Google. Um, so family secrets and mysteries play a significant part or a significant role in control, Paul. They drive the plot. Was it a challenge creating them and weaving them into the story? Yeah, I think it was a challenge. I think sort of particularly fighting the right pace, you know, at which to, to build the suspension um, between certain characters, you know. I don't want to spoil anything in the story here, so I just want to be careful. Um, but then, you know, when to put that information out, you know, and about the betrayal and when it finally comes out, you know, I needed it to be so shocking, mm-hmm. but at the same time, so indisputable for the family then to react the way they did. Yeah. I think that was probably the difficult part, just getting that right. I did feel a little bit sorry for some of your characters that were, yeah. you know, highly maligned. But anyway, we may come to that. <laughs> <laughs> it seems funny to answer a question about secrets and mysteries to say, well, I don't really want to give too much away. Yeah, to find a balance. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of mistrust and paranoia. It seems to be like a reoccurring motive in this book. More so than the lack of power, really, the electrical kind, I mean. What message are you giving your readers here? All the mistrust and paranoia. Yeah, well, well, I think the mistrust and the paranoia, certainly in the case of the general public in the story, you know, comes from probably a combination of, of two things. You know, the, the utter disbelief that something like this could happen. You know, I think yeah. even throughout the story over the, the, you know, the days of that span, 
people are still thinking, oh, the power's bound to come on, you know, soon, it'll be on tomorrow or whatever. This is this kind of thing's never happened before, you know. So there's still that sort of disbelief of of how long it's been going on for and what the sort of the devastating effect on society has been. And then I think the other side is the complete lack of information because if you remember all communications are down. So even authorities, you know, are having trouble getting information and um, and being able to give guidance then uh, to the public. So I think when that happens, you know, the, the likes of the local council or the police or the army, you know, they just don't know what to do. Uh, it's never, never had this before. Yeah. And so they even themselves think, you know, the power should be back on, you know, soon because they're not getting any information from the, the utility companies to know what's going on. So maybe the first few days they've given out all of their emergency rations, which I'm sure in a normal situation, there isn't that much of stored away anywhere, you know, and I think there's a, a, a lack of willingness to make a decision, you know, maybe to commandeer the contents of some of the big supermarkets that have maybe been shut up and, and locked down. Yeah. Um, so when that happens, then there's a, a mistrust that builds, I think, within the public. So they're only too happy to to latch on to anybody, rumours or anybody that's willing to, to sort of take their side and, and, and willing to take control. So There seems to be a lot of violence in the control of dishing out what food there is in mm. the shops, etc. I think that is real, though. Well, yeah, that's what I tried to go for. You know, some people, as I say, are going to take advantage of the situation. You know, there's one of the shopkeepers in, in control um, hikes up his prices. You know, mm. even he thinks this is probably only going to be a few days, but it's already been maybe a week. So people are desperate. They'll pay anything for for any kind of food they can get, you know. So. Yeah. yeah, he's one of the, the nefarious characters that, that tries to take advantage of the situation. In all honesty, Paul, when you think about the fact that, you know, and, and taking it into a kind of real life scenario, if all the power did go out, you would completely and utterly be at a loss as to what to do. Mm. So uh, there is a lot of realism throughout the book about, about what would happen if there was a complete power outage. It's it's really strange because I was just a, a talking to to somebody about this and about the power outage, and they were going, "Oh, well, you would just ring somebody." Uh, mm. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, the character Ray is misunderstood and a little maligned, but he's also central to the plot. Can you share more about his challenges and what you wanted from his character? Yeah, well, I think it's probably another area where I need to be. Careful not to give too much away, but uh, so we met Ray briefly in Reliance. Uh, he worked with Derek at the prison, uh, and he was uh, Lisa's brother. So then, when we see Ray again, and then in Donegal, um, so his sort of backstory has been that he left Donegal, you know, when he was in his late teens, early twenties, you know, in the in the nineties, to move to Belfast to join the prison service. So he became a prison officer. Now, given the situation. At the time, he had to keep that his job very secret. Um, certainly, when he was back home, you know there were certain people from his past, maybe that went down a different path from him. And so, anytime he was back in Donegal, he'd be very careful, you know, where he went or who he associated with. So, in the story, then there are some things that happened that happened that 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 fuel his anxiety about all of this uh, and about some of his previous relationships and associations. And he's very keen, I would say, 
not to share that certainly with Derek and with his family. So that causes some some issues within the story. I suppose he's a little bit afraid of retribution, isn't it? Because, you know, it's not the sort of career that one mm. would have coming from Ireland. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Talking of retribution, the involvement of your ageing relic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do don't want to give too much away from Ireland's troubled past. Adds an intriguing layer. I love this layer, actually. It adds a real darkness to the story. <laughs> How did you come up with this character? Is it based on anyone you know or someone from history? So what role does he play? Okay, so the Dermot character uh, is based on a real person. Now, okay. I, I don't know this person personally, and and he's not from the same part of the country as, as where the story is set. So just want to make that clear in case anybody that I know from Donegal thinks, oh, is he based that on me? And so when I lived up there, I you know, I had met, Similar characters, you know, maybe not as extreme as Dermot, yeah. um, but, you know, men who maybe once enjoyed a bit of status who, you know, you know, were now lucky if they got the odd tourist to listen to their stories, you know, which probably became exa- more and more exaggerated over the years, you know. Um, but the, the, the little bar, actually, that uh, Dermot uses as his base in control um, yeah. is a real place. And the way it's described, uh, I think I described it pretty accurately. Uh, in the book, um, I made the mistake one one night of of going in, you know, to check it out, uh, and there were about five or six people in in the place. All all conversations stopped immediately as soon as I walked through the door, um, <laughs> and it was clear, you know, from the I ordered a pint, and it was clear from the demeanour of the barman and and the silenced eyes that burned into me for the whole length of time it took me to, to drink my pint that that was the only drink I should have and I should leave again, you know. So so yeah. You know, certainly based on, on reality, both both Dermot and and you know the, the the little bar that they they use as their base. So. Do you think the people that drink there will recognise it? They certainly will if any of them <laughs> read it. Yeah, <laughs> it certainly would. Uh, even just the, the the front of it is a it's just like a wooden gateway with a yeah. small hatch in it. Um, you know, the likes you'd see at a get one an old garage door type thing. Um, and that's exactly the way it is, just out onto the main street. Um, just like you see at the movies. <laughs> <laughs> you see, it's funny, really, because when I read the first chapter, I thought Dermot was perhaps one of the good guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, maybe maybe he did. Well, yeah, in his head. Start yeah. off that way, yeah. Yeah, yeah maybe yeah. in his head, exactly. So in the context of the power cut and the chaos in the world, was this a case of taking away as much as you could to see how your characters would react. Well, that's interesting. Actually, you say taking away as much as you could. I, I think I only took away one thing, and that was electricity. Like the biggest thing that we have. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest thing that we rely on, you know, for our daily lives. Exactly. But but then, you know, most people don't, you don't think about it really. It's just there. It's always been there, you know. Mm-hmm. don't really think about what the consequences would be that if it was gone okay you don't have lights you maybe don't have heating that type of thing but you know people don't realize that okay if it's confined maybe to a small area or if it only lasts a day or two you know it wouldn't be so bad it's you just hunker down and, and wait it out or or you drive 30 minutes up the road to a relative's house or or you know mm. to a supermarket that does have, have power but in this story though when it's global there's nowhere you can go. 
you know, there are no working ATMs. There's no shops open in, open in the in the neighbouring towns. You know, there's no one that can send help. And I suppose when the power cut lasts for more than a few days, it's it's really frightening when you think about it. How quickly society could just completely collapse. Yeah. You know, when you, when you think about it, shops shops can't take electronic payment, and and who carries cash anymore? I, I no, I certainly don't. I could I could probably scrape up about. 20 or 30 pounds around the house, you know, if I searched every drawer and turned the sofa upside down, you know, but other than that, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, I don't know what other people are like, but I, I haven't used cash in a, in a long time. So I don't tend to carry it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the way, the way it's going, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's places like, you know, petrol stations who can't pump fuel, water treatment plants who can't treat drinking water, you know, things like that. And then you've got, hospitals and emergency services who run on generators so you know they're probably only designed to to work for a a few days or a couple of weeks maybe what happens after that you know it's frightening to think just how just a normal person could turn to doing you know possibly extreme things you know if you imagine your parent you know with a baby who who needs baby formula and, and you're running out and you know there is a shop open that has some but they only take cash and you don't have any, you know, what do you do? Do you just try and take it? You know, what happens if the, the owner tries to stop you, you know? So, yeah, I think this is why I love sort of speculative fiction. You know, I think it leaves you wondering what if, yeah, what mm-hmm. if I was in that situation, what would I do? And I suppose that's where the whole story came from. You know, just me just sitting thinking one night, well, what, what if this happened or what would you do if this happened? And I think I tortured for months. I tortured my friends every time I saw them saying, this was, if you were in this scenario, what would you do? And, you know, so that's why I love speculative fiction. And I think that's probably what I'll yeah. continue to write. I think desperation does drive people to do things they would never do ordinarily. Mm. So writing a sequel then, that can be a challenge. So how did you approach that to make sure that you had consistency with reliance and also to bring in fresh elements to the story as well. It is challenging. I think Reliance started off as a standalone, but then I soon realized that I wanted to to make it into a series. Mm-hmm. So I think I had, from very early on, I had it in my head that I would do three full novels and three novelettes associated with the, you know, the series. I like the idea of the novelettes because it let me pick out a couple of maybe side characters that didn't really notice, certainly in the first book. Um, and then just explore, you know, what what would happen to them in, in certain scenarios. So, yeah, you talked about Doctor Death there. Yes, yes. So there was a couple of characters in in Reliance. Um, one of them was a prisoner. Another was a an, an old man who, you know, got involved near the end of, of Reliance. So, yeah. Um, so I would often and wrote a little story about, you know, what happened. You know, an interaction between them. Um, Your main character in Doctor Death, he was a wonderful man. Yes, yes, uh, George. You'd want him on your side in any situation. He was just, you just wanted to do things for him and make sure he was okay. And he just had this backbone that he never needed before or wasn't obvious before. It was just, yeah, I liked Doctor Death. I really enjoyed writing Doctor Death. That was that's probably been my my favorite so far. What I do is I keep a, a full sort of um, fact sheet on every character. And then I have a I have a, a chart, a timeline chart to make sure that you know everything fits together properly. So so what I, I really like 
the fact that this is a series, you know, I've been able to put some hints to things that might come in the future and maybe introduce some some characters that you, you maybe only see a little bit of in, in certain books, but, you know, will make an appearance, you know, down the line. So. I do think, though, having read Control and not read Reliance, because it was Daisy that read Reliance for the podcast, and it was at a time when we were sort of comparing and contrasting yes. two books. I do think that you get would get more from Control if you read Reliance. I don't. I, my opinion is I don't think mm. you can take them as a standalone book because there were bits and pieces that I had to think about how they linked together. Yes. And I think that within Reliance and then the continuity to control would will give the reader a better experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think some people's books within series can be read um, in isolation. Mm. I don't think any of the books in, in my series could be read in isolation. I think you need to read them in, in order uh, to get the most out of them, I think. I do agree. So... Can you share any memorable moments or scenes from the book that were particularly enjoyable or, or even challenging to write? Yeah, so I think there was a, there was a scene in Control where Derek and Ray were out fishing, um, and I, I really enjoyed that scene. I thought it was it was fun to write. You know, it was very visual and sort of a bit chaotic and, and lighthearted. And but it was also an important scene though because it, it set up Derek and Ray's relationship and give us a bit more of an insight into that and showed that, they, you know, they were able to have fun despite all of the tragedy that was going on, you know, around them or that they that, that just experienced. But it also then helped to build an important contrast between what was to come next for their relationship. Mm-hmm. And I and I hope that that worked. That was kind of the purpose of, of that scene. But that was, a, that was a fun scene to write, I think. One of the hardest scenes, this is going back to, to Reliance now, one of the hardest scenes, and then April, you won't know what this scene is, but Daisy, you may remember this, was um, a scene featuring Martin in Reliance. Oh, yeah. And I find this really, really emotional to, to write uh, at the time, you know, and I hope that comes across to the reader, but that was a very difficult scene to write. Sorry, April, you'll have to go back and read Reliance to know what I'm talking about. I don't, I don't want to give like anything away there, but Martin was... Well, he was central to the first book, mm. and that that was heartbreaking right there. Mm. It was uh, <laughs> bloody power cuts. <laughs> <laughs> but it's great that when you're when you're writing, you know that you can feel that emotion while you're actually putting it down on, on paper, and you just hope that the reader feels that as well when they're actually reading it. I think if it evokes all that emotion in you just writing it, then. You're pretty much guaranteed. I think you can tell the difference between a writer that is invested in his characters and a writer that's writing something that it's just for the commercial Mm. aspect of it. I think you can tell. I hope so. What I enjoyed about Control, I I found myself being immersed in what I imagined was 1970s Northern Ireland. And I know that that's Mm. not what it is. But that it invoked a lot of thought in me about that. What must it have been like in a rural area in seventies Northern Ireland? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and I suppose Park does knock you back, you know, into the past straight away. So yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and certainly then up in in Donegal, you know, in, in rural Donegal, you know, it probably would be like that. Certainly when the park was up. Yeah. 
Moving beyond control, you hinted earlier that there's another one coming in this season. So you're writing the third one to this, are you? Uh, so I've two novels uh, and one novelette as, as part of Parlous Earth um, series. Um, eventually there'll be three full novels and three novelettes. Um, now, I've taken a, a break from writing the Parlous Earth series because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm writing what I th- hope is a, a timely speculative fiction um, book. It's kind of based on some questionable decisions by the, the UK government around the whole asylum seekers being you know sent to Rwanda and all of that. So, um, so I'm really excited about that. And I'm, I'm sort of halfway through um, planning. I've written a little bit of it, but the planning's more or less complete on that. So that's set three or four years in the future. You've got almost infinite stories connected to that subject. You could write almost anything. Well, this this story, again, it gets people thinking, you know, well, what would I do in that situation? Or, you know, do I agree with this approach? You know, so it's about a, a journalist who uncovers a, a scheme by the government, which they say will, will direct funds to the, the crippled NHS. This is like three or four years in the future. So the NHS really is on its knees. Yeah. Um, but with that, that comes at a huge moral cost. So I suppose as a reader, you have to decide. Is that moral cost worth it? So yeah. that'll hopefully be out next year. So, Okay, looking forward to that. Yes. Then we'll get back to Parlous Earth series at some stage. So the last question that we've got for you, Paul, is not really a question. It's more of a statement, to be honest. Could you share some insights into your writing process? And do you actually have any tips or rituals that help you stay focused and creative while working on novels? I suppose they say there's there's pantsers, people who write mm. just by the seat of their pants, or planners who you work out every final or every minute detail before they even start. So I think I'm the latter. I would spend months doing research and planning a book, you know, even before I put, put pen to paper. And then what I'll do is I'll, I'll outline the full story structure, identify all the scenes, write an outline of each scene, you know, and, and including what it's purposes and you know and then once i've done all that i'll start fleshing out each of the scenes and that you know hopefully gets me to my by my first draft um at some stage but and i think one of the things that i find really easy about taking that route is that you know i'll write the scenes ideally chronologically Mm. i'll I'll go through each one in, in turn but sometimes you know sometimes you get this scene and you just you get writer's block you just can't you know, get inspiration for for what you want to write in that scene. And the way I approach it then is I can just take one of the other scenes that I know I need to write in the future and I can pick an easy one, uh, you know, and and start writing through that. And I think that's a way to get around writer's block for me. It's a a good tip for anybody that, you know, finds themselves getting blocked at any time. When, When I do jump about, I know I'm going to have to make revisions. I know things might, you know, continuity might be, be slightly out. Um, mm. But, you know, it certainly keeps me moving. And I think that's the most important thing. In terms of my approach, this will probably make some pantsers' heads explode here, but I have I have spreadsheets and graphs and I even have a whiteboard with post-its for every scene, you know, in my office. But I have great admiration for, for people who can just sit down and write without a plan, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. then still manage to get the structure and the flow and the pacing and all just, just right. 
I know I, I certainly couldn't do it. Does that mean then, Paul, that you only concentrate on one book at a time? Or does that method <laughs> lend itself to you being able to work on more than one book? Well, I have, I would say I have probably five ideas in folders at the moment. And those would be, you know, I, I would give myself an outline just so that I don't forget in the future, you know, what, what my idea for this book was. And, you know, I'd maybe have a beginning, middle of a, and the end of, of a story and maybe some rough ideas of scenes. So every now and again, if I come up with some another idea for that project, I'll just fire some more information into that folder. So, so yeah, there are probably four or five folders building up of, of ideas of uh, books that I want to, to write at some stage in the future. It's just getting time at the minute to, 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 yeah. to do it. It's, yeah. Good news for your fans, though, that want to read more from you, that you've got all these ideas. I hope so, if I can <laughs> ever get them written. <laughs> <laughs> Talking of your readers, for people that are listening today that want to continue to follow your journey now that they've listened to this, where can people find more out about you online? I'm on Amazon, certainly. There's also my uh, author's site, which is just my name.org, so MacMurrah. Dot org, uh, and then uh, I've the, the first book is out on Audible as well, so we're we're on Audible, and that's um, that's actually narrated by a Belfast actor uh, named a guy called Jonathan Harden. I need to go back and try and get him to to narrate now Doctor Death and, and Control as well, but I, I better do that soon because he's he's getting very busy. I'm, I'm starting to see him in a lot of movies and and TV shows now, so uh, hopefully he hasn't left uh, audiobook narration behind. Interesting. I have um, a friend that struggles to read just through like dyslexia and things like mm. that and will only listen to audiobooks. So you having an audiobook for the stories that we're talking about today is mm -hmm. brilliant news for people yeah. like her. Actually, there's also, um, I've been working with a few other authors and we've um, developed a dyslexia-friendly um, format of, of our books. So uh, certainly my books are available in dyslexia-friendly editions. Um, Terrific, Paul. Yeah, I did notice that, Paul. I was having a, a look earlier on in the week. I noticed that one of the reviews that you'd got mentioned that, you know, dyslexia-friendly, uh, mm -hmm. sort of praising you for that. More books and authors ought to be encouraged to go down that route. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, there may not be a huge market, you know, financially for it, but I think it's important, you know, to encourage people to, people who are maybe reluctant to pick up a physical book you know i think we need to encourage that and, and try to make that as easy as possible i agree yeah well thank you very much paul that's been really really interesting i am now going to read reliance and i'm looking forward <laughs> to the third one coming out absolutely thank you very much yeah da i'm gonna say daisy's one step ahead of me on this one <laughs> yeah dr death uh, it wouldn't be a light-hearted read um but no. I, I really enjoyed writing it but you will love george yeah, I'm not really for light-hearted reads, if I'm honest. Oh, you'll love it then. Very good. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. We've learned so much. Yeah, and, and you too. Thank you very much for the invite, and uh, I'm looking forward to the, the new season. Thank you. Uh, and keep up the good work with the podcast. <laughs> thank you. That was one of the most enlightening interviews. I do like the way that he writes. It's very logical. 
I can see how it gives him the opportunity to have more than one project on the go at once. He is like planned to the nth degree with all his folders and his post-its and his notes around the room. The dedication you've got to have to your craft to put that amount of work in for months before you even start writing. See, I'd be too impatient to do that. You think you'd be a pantser if you wrote a novel? Yeah, of course I would. <laughs> I don't think I've got the ability to write a novel, but would yeah, I would be flying by the seat of my pants, which is nothing new really, is it? This is very true. You are always lastminute.com. I am, in recent years, becoming a firm fan of spreadsheets. <laughs> I love them for work. You know, I do have a, have a financial one at home, but that's as far as it goes. I wouldn't... Uh... But they're so versatile and editable and friendly. There are other programmes that are better than, than spreadsheets for that kind of thing. Disclaimer, this is not an advert for Excel. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and talking about flying by the seat of my pants, kind of trying to get ahead of the game in this season, and I've got my ideas in my head for the next flash fiction prompt, which is... Already? Yeah. <laughs> oh, excuse me, I, I need to lie down. That, that was meant to be your cue to tell everybody what it was, what the next flash fiction prompt is. But if you're not going to do it... I am, I am. <laughs> it is the unreliable mirror. See, I've got all sorts of little seeds forming in my brain about that. Yeah, the unreliable mirror. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, it's mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest of them all? The problem is it never talks back to me. That's because it doesn't lie. <laughs> You'd be upset. It's meant to be unreliable, not trustworthy. Sorry. Yeah. Your mirror can lie. Yes. <laughs> you are yeah. the fairest in the land. <laughs> I just think I'm doing this podcast on my own now today. You might as well be. <laughs> I might as well be. Right. So in the absence of Daisy's Sense and Sensibility. Sense and Sensibility. There's a book. Yes. The Unreliable Mirror. So... As with all of the flash fictions, if you are interested in writing and joining in with the podcast, we do have the full list of the flash fiction prompts on our socials, along with those all important deadlines. So make sure you are popping along. The list is on Facebook. It's on X now and Twitter. it's on Instagram. Yeah, Twitter. <laughs> Twitter to normal folk. Yeah. So it is there. Make sure you pop along, grab the one you're interested in and get writing. Just a thought to leave you with. I wonder if Elon Musk thought if he called it X, it would eventually become as famous as Prince. You know, because he just had a sign at one time. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to go. So what I'm going to say, folks, is look after yourself, take care, and uh, don't forget to listen out for the next episode. What she said. Take care of each other. See you next time. Thank you for joining us. Now you've had a listen, why not pop over and join us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to send in your flash fiction submissions, you just need to email us at bearbookspod1 at gmail.com. And now that you're part of the Bear Books family, why not share us with all the bookworms and creatives in your life? Join me, Daisy Ray, on the Talk Poetry To Me podcast. 
where we dive into the hearts and minds of poets and spoken word artists, unveiling emotions, sharing stories and embracing the power of words. Tune in to discover the voices that paint our world with truth. Talk poetry to me. You can listen wherever you download your podcasts.